Hello, welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising podcast. I'm Andy Clef, and today my co-host is Jabroni, also <laughs> known as Jay Hersko. How are you doing, brother? I'm hanging in there. And we're joined by a returning guest, Joshua Karayevsky, CEO of Industrial Logic, founder of Modern Agile, author of Refactoring to Patterns, numerous Agile e-learning courses, the last time we had you on the show, I had to look it up because my memory is not that great. It was one of our first episodes. It was five years ago. Introducing Modern Agile back in 2017. Welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. We're here to chat about your forthcoming book, The Joy of Agility. The book will be out on February 7th, 2023. Mm-hmm. You can pre-order it at uh, many major bookseller. It's... Um, very exciting to uh yeah the cover art's all done and they're getting it to the printer and all that good stuff so it, it's this is being published with a um a division of random house penguin uh, uh so it's it's a bigger you know it's part of a much bigger publishing arm mm-hmm. and it's a small but it's a small uh publisher um, and it's a fellow named, um, well, the company's called Ben Bella. And mm. Ben Bella has some wonderful authors, including uh, Patrick Lencioni's new book is going to be with Ben Bella. And oh, okay. uh, a guy that I admire tremendously named uh, Harry Beckwith is publishing with them again. And he's uh, he wrote a book called Selling the Invisible, which uh, is one of uh, the books I find you know, near and dear to my heart. Um it's about how to run a services company and you know yeah do it yeah. successfully uh he's also publishing with them and yeah i i uh was very fortunate to fall in with those folks and matt holt is the publisher matt's a very well-known name in the publishing industry uh, he's been with a lot of different companies including john wiley and he um his imprint will be on this book and you know he's he's amazing so that's great. You were kind enough to send, send Jay and I an advanced reader's copy, and we we read it. We marked it up. We've got uh, our usual, you know, yeah. tags and stuff to talk about. <laughs> great. It was just delightful. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll I'll kick us off. Um, I I'm always on the lookout for when someone says to me, "I want to read a book about agile." What do I read? And it's, it's depending upon the mood and the person I'm talking to. I'm like, what do I give them? This is my, and everybody who's listened to the show long enough knows that I read a shit ton. This is my new Bible. And I have told a bazillion people, you need to pick up this book and give it to others. Not just for yourself. You need to read it and give it to others. Um, My my true, honestly, Joshua, my true test is how many other books are you going to make me read after reading yours? And as I'm reading yours, I have Amazon open and, and last count it was four. I think it was four or five on the back of that. So that's to me, I'm like, okay, definitely worth the the time. And that's, that's like my, that's my, you know, arbiter. But the, the thing, and I think I'll jump off with this. The thing that, that stuck with me the most is the idea of the uses of a metaphor, right? And a non-technology metaphor, you know, metaphors, Sean Hotchkiss said, you know, metaphors are how we make sense of the world. And 90% 90% of this book is told via metaphor that has literally nothing to do with technology. And I have, I have, I have, I have stuff highlighted and marked up all over the place. And I've, I've beaten it to death because the easiest way to make someone understand something kind of difficult or could be cerebrally challenging is to compare it to something else, which isn't. And I mean, some of your examples of Alcoa, the, the, the tennis the tennis examples, Marie Kondo, when she showed up, I started laughing and the, the broken deconstructed lemon tart, right? These are things where you don't have to do necessarily what we do to see it and draw that equivalency, which I thought was, I got to give you credit, man. It's absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I love agility for non-commercial reasons. So, I mean, I, agile has become a dumpster fire, uh, you know, the commercialization of agile, um, it's it's been very hard to watch, but you know. So so really, one of the major reasons that I wrote this book was to try to save the word agile and bring back the joy 
that we experience of, of agility, actual agility. That was one of the primary reasons for writing it. And, um, you know, it, there's, it's not a negative book. There's no, I'm not thrashing anyone in there. I'm not, you know, Mm-mm. it is all about like joyful moments and agility in all kinds of industries and things like that. It's, it really, there's stories that go back to my teenage years. You know, I mean, I, I basically, any story that I, that has been impactful either from my own life or from other people's experiences, you know, even a, a story about NASA and, and the actual real story of NASA Anything that just sticks to the brain and goes, wow, there's a really important lesson there. I wanted it in the book. There are stories from so many different disciplines. It was mm. just delightful. I started to write them down. It's architecture. It's it's music. It's restaurants. It's comedy. It's You, you clearly have a love for tennis. Uh, I'm curious about your process or your discovery process for writing the book. Uh, we'll get into the six mantras that that form the skeleton of it. Did you start with them? Did you match them, or did they emerge as you affinity grouped these stories that you you carried with you along your journey? Yeah, I mean, it started with just writing down some stories that I felt were were valuable to share. A lot of those are stories I've told over the years, you know, on numerous occasions on in, in numerous contexts. And at a certain point, once you start telling the same story multiple times, you realize, hey, I, I better write this down. It's just getting tiresome to tell it all the time. Maybe I can just point people to something to read. Um, so it really began with a collection of stories. And at a certain point, I had a large number of these stories, and I had no organization to them whatsoever, just a, a, a you know, a pile of stories. Yeah. That's when I started, you know, uh first talking to a few uh folks in the publishing industry and one of them was like this is these are great stories but you, you need organization to them and i was like well i know that just haven't gotten to it yet um i mean you can't just have a long story so yes the 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 structure of the book started to emerge and that took place over many months because i think i'd have the right you know uh this the right name for a certain collection of the stories and i'd be like you know actually that's not quite it at one point, I thought maybe modern agile would be a good frame for the stories, and then I realized, you know, it, it wasn't exactly what I wanted. There was there was more there than what what modern agile was saying, um, and you know, I just let the emergence happen, and and I I also just kept thinking and reflecting and not rushing um, in order to let it come to be. And then and then I'm a huge huge fanatic in terms of getting feedback, so. There were most likely somewhere between 30 to 50 different uh, friends uh, hitting my Google Doc <laughs> with uh, comments and things. You know, some of them were like hard to hear. I was like, you know, I remember uh, Linda Rising was like, don't like this story. Uh, and I was like, God, that's one of my favorites. And, and then someone else came along and said they didn't like it either. And I was like, damn, you know, I, I probably got to take this one out. Um, so I have like a collection of stories that didn't make it in. Um, but you know, so I, I listen, I really do listen to people when they give feedback and, uh, and sometimes it's hard to hear, you know, but yeah, but that's the author's cheat. You, you have like your outtakes. It's like a director has the director's cut. You can, you can release a book in 18 months, which is just your outtakes with no structure. And there you go. That's the the old the old author trick, right? Oh, well, That's these right. chapters were left over. Um, <laughs> so what? I mean, I I really love you know. You talked about how the the agile industrial complex has kind of ruined what we do, which is I don't think anybody would disagree with, right? Um, you start out with what I think is kind of brass tacks table stakes. If I'm going to use all these trite business metaphors, defining the word itself. Yeah, defining the what does this truly mean at at, a, at almost like a genetic level, the uh, marked by ready availability to move with quick and easy grace, uh, having a quicker, resourceful, and adaptable character, and then you call out very quickly on at the same breath, which I thought was brilliant. Being quick does not mean being agile, right? And that was the line that that I've, I again this, you and uh, what's his name Jonathan Rasmussen I probably owe royalties to because I have wrote these quotes down and every time I, I, a dollar goes in the jar, the Josh jar, um, I, I use that all the time because there is that equivalence. People think that, oh, agile means we go fast. That's not necessarily true. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I remember. So in, in my uh, senior year of college, we had to write a, you know, our final senior paper at, mm-hmm. at my school. And I ended up writing about William Faulkner's writing style, believe it or not. And he, when he's describing a character, he won't say like, you know, she's, she was skinny. He won't say that. He'll say she was not this and not that and not that and not that, but this. And I called it the not but construction because, you know, it was like to, to be really precise about something, you, you, he, he realized he had to say all the things that they were not and then what they were. So, you know, to me, that that just says, if you really want to understand something, you've got to also say what it's not. You know, you've got to say what it's not. So, I, I yeah, the, the association with just speed and agility is like, no, that's not it. And there's a bunch of things that are... Um, just mistakes. I mean, I'll hear all, I, sometimes I hear people on sports, um, sports casters, you know, they'll say, oh yeah, that person's quick and agile. You know, I'm like, well, that's redundant. I mean, because quickness <laughs> is part of agile. So you mm-hmm. cannot be agile if you aren't quick. It's not the equivalent of being quick, but it's it's redundant to say that. So it's a bunch of things. You know? Yeah. So the six mantras, let's just figure out how we want to discuss them one at a time. Your mm-hmm. favorite the one you struggled with, dealer's choice. Yeah, which one did you struggle with? I'd be curious to hear that one. Which one came to you, or, or not if struggle is a bad um, adjective, which one came to you late? That's uh, easy. Um, so uh, the the it's the one that says be balanced and graceful. That was, that was difficult. Hard. Um, I, I can tell you where... It, I actually gave a speech about this, uh, one of my early speeches on joy of agility. I, I kind of went through like what happened, you know, and, um, you know, I'm a huge Paul O'Neill fan. Um, I've been a Paul O'Neill fan. And for those who don't know Paul O'Neill, he was the CEO of Alcoa. He was, mm-hmm. um, he actually was the, the treasury secretary of the United States for about a year under um, one of the George W. Bush in 2000, he only lasted about a year because he couldn't stand it. Um, he also started working on the healthcare industry to clean that up and just an absolutely brilliant, brilliant guy. Probably the smartest person I've ever met. I, I talked to him twice. Um, and I fell in love with his story of, of just how he transformed Alcoa, a 100 year old company, through safety, through worker safety. It's just a tremendous story. And so the thing about him is, you know, he, he's very, very clear that if you don't have a culture of dignity and respect, um, if you don't, you know, really, truly respect people and, and you know, give them d- dignity, you will never be high performing. You will never have what he calls the ability to achieve habitual excellence. Mm. And so, you know, for a while, that particular mantra there was related to, you know, um, sort of respect and to give people dignity, you know, something like that. I mean, it was, you know, be respectful and dignity. Yeah. It, but it, it, it didn't quite uh, go because here's the thing: those definitions you talked about earlier, right? And those definitions, people will say, "Well, Josh's definition of agile." That's not my definition of agile. That's from Merriam-Webster dictionary, for God's sakes. Right. I take no credit for it. It's from Merriam-Webster's, you know, dictionary. Um, and I always say, you know, I am American, but I I travel the world. I'm about to go to Australia. I, I view myself more as a world citizen. I love the Oxford English dictionary. I grew up using it, looking at the Greek in the OED. Um, but I don't think the OED is doing a great job of defining agile. I think the Merriam-Webster dictionary is way, way better. Um, so the thing was, the mantras had to kind of uh, deepen the definition of agile, and so each of the six mantras really, in mo- in most senses, six of all six of them kind of go deeper into the the definitions. So the graceful word I wanted in there, I wanted that word graceful in there. Because I believe that ultimately to, to treat people with dignity and respect is you need to be graceful with people. And that word graceful is, so it's it's a it's a word that you, you could, you have to really get your head around. What does this mean to be graceful with people? So it eventually went from like dignity and respect to just be graceful. And for a while it was just be graceful. Uh, but then, you know, I'm, 
big student of uh, John Wooden, the, the famous coach of the UCLA Bruins and, you know, legendary basketball player and coach. And he was really clear that you cannot be fast if you're not in balance. Right. And so that sense of balance was so important that I wanted it to be in there too. And I felt that balance and grace, you know, were, were very closely connected, that you had to be, that to be graceful, you have to be in balance. Think about when you're disturbed, right? You're not, you're out of balance. But you can still be centered. Right. So to be, and, and so being centered is really important to being graceful, especially with people. So be balanced and graceful really went well together. And so after it took months, but that's what it ended up finally being was this phrase, be balanced and graceful. There's another piece, and, and I think it's in this section, uh, about the, the beauty of mistakes. Yes, yes. Um, mistake Mistakes are the portals to discovery. Yes. Right. yes. Tell a story about a Michelin restaurant, and um, I love that one. Yes, yes. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm extremely jealous. Um, in, uh, op, Industrial Logic's um, operations manager, a woman named Shauna, is currently on her uh, vacation in Italy right now. Um, it's two years late. She turned 52 years ago because of COVID. She couldn't go. So she's on this wonderful um, trip to Italy. And she got, they, she and her husband got a, a spot at Massimo Bottura's restaurant in Moderna. <laughs> Oh. Moderna, Moderna, not the not the pharmaceutical, uh, Moderna, Italy. Um, it's called um, yeah, Osteria Francescana, and so she they're, apparently they're going to be eating there, and she might she's supposed to be seeing if Massimo might like sign the part of the book or I don't know. We'll see if I'll see. That'd be cool. But this was on Chef's Table, so if you don't watch Chef's Table on Netflix, you're really missing something special. Even especially the latest editions of Chef's Table Pizza Edition. Um, but the very first season one, episode one of Chef's Table on Netflix was about Mossimo Bottura. And it's just a beautiful episode to watch. I remember watching it years ago and just falling in love and just going, oh my God, this story of this broken uh, lemon tart, his, his sous chef broke the lemon tart. They're making two of these tarts for some you know, people in the, in the restaurant for a dessert. And one of the tarts fell onto the, the person's work service. It broke into a bunch of pieces. And, and this particular sous chef is the number one sous chef in the number one restaurant in the world was just, you know, he's Japanese. He was ready to commit harikari. You know, like, how could I, I'm a professional. How could I have done this? Uh, luckily, he worked with Massimo. Massimo came along. He said, what do we do? So Massimo breaks the other one. And then on the spot turns it into this kind of uh, dish of like, it was purposefully broken and he called it, oops, I dropped the lemon tart. And it's this broken lemon tart on top of this gelato and this other stuff. And it's all, it's just, it's, it's, an, it's an incredible story. Um, and it, it has become an iconic dish of that restaurant. In fact, in San Francisco, if you go to the MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco, you can go to the cafe and you can get, oops, I dropped the lemon tart. Fantastic! <laughs> it's a, it's amazing. Yeah, just an incredible story of of treating a mistake like an opportunity to create something, right? And that only happens to your point with grace and with balance. Which, by the way, I gotta admit, I had no idea that the Paul O'Neill from Alcoa is the Paul O'Neill from the Bush administration. Because when I first saw Paul O'Neill uh, geographically, I thought of the Yankees slugger. I'm like, wait a minute. He was the CEO of Alcoa. Like, what am I not getting here? Um, the, the one of the stories that you referenced him, which I thought was brilliant. Um, listeners have heard us do an episode on Howard Bloom's Lucifer principle and the idea of othering and how as humans, it's completely natural for us to create the other class to look at. And his whole thing where he stripped out all the luxury perks that came from being an executive. Right, yes. the hunting lodge and the private dining and all that, and treating everyone on a level playing field, right? Systemically identify and remove the mixed messaging that goes in with that. I read that and I put the book down and I was like, that is absolutely brilliant because your culture, we all know, is not what you do, it's what you tolerate. And if you tolerate that self selecting class, people are always going to be looking, trying to knock that down. It just it creates a bad vibe. 
Yeah, I mean, he was the real deal when it comes to just uh, egalitarian. Uh, you know, he got rid of the fancy cafeteria for the executives. <laughs> like, yep. you know, I mean, just um, he sent a very clear message when he started that we're not going to have different tiers of importance in this company. And, um, you know, to me, the the whole story about the the, you know, sawdust sweepers, people that were, you know, sweeping sawdust onto these oil spills, you know, and he and he looks at this. This is like, you know, you're talking about an, an aluminum plant, which is, you know, hundreds of acres mm -hmm. and these trucks would leave oil spills. And, he, you know, he, he comes in, he's like, well, why are the trucks leaving oil spills? He's like, well, that's just what these, these um, you know, forklift trucks do. They, they do leak a little oil. It's just the nature of forklift trucks. And so they have these people for decades sweeping sawdust onto little bits of, of you know, um, oil on the ground so no one slips, right? It, you could say, well, this is for safety. It's a good thing. But, you know, if you look at it, they're providing no real value to the end product, which is aluminum. Right. You know, they are making right. it safer, but they're not necessarily contributing something that gives meaning to their life. And so he looked at that and said, this is not treating these workers with dignity and respect. And mm -hmm. so he literally <laughs> goes to this, manufacturer of forklift trucks in Japan and says, can you make me a forklift that doesn't leak? <laughs> and they did. And they bought them and they brought them back and they eliminated that job. But they all those people got to go into new positions doing much more meaningful work. More to get, much more yeah. purposeful. Yeah. yeah. That, that's incredible. Just, uh, wow. And it takes somebody in a leadership vision uh, position with the vision to make that deep of a change within an organization. Yes, yes. And, and clearly he had it. Jay, did you have one? Yes, I'm my favorite. Can we do my favorite? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and you, you know, you mentioned John Wooden. This was the this was the the chapter I really dug into. Um, be quick, but don't hurry. Yeah. That... And uh, the idea of quickness under control. Right. It's it's the whole slow is smooth, smooth is fast, fast is decisive. Like it's the whole Jocko Willing thing. That thought of of you're moving at speed, but you are operating in a in a place of control. Right. Because the triangle office trying to explain that to people who don't play basketball, even to people who do play basketball. It is kind of tough. Right. It's all off the ball movement and all that. It, it's more cerebral, but he nailed it. He's the winning. What was the winningest college NCAA men's college coach? I think yes, yes. Th that. And funnily enough, I read this chapter and uh, Joshua, I got to tell you, in multiple meetings, I've had people say, yeah, you know, like John Wooden, the guy from UCLA. And I'm like, did they all read the same book I did? Because I'm seeing it everywhere. It's like, you know, don't think of the cow and hear the cow is. Um, but that I did. And you had there was so much in that one chapter alone. Um, the idea of increasing slack in a system. Yeah. Right? You increase the ability to let things expand and contract and breathe the idea the, the inverse of tightly coupling um handoffs handoffs and you, there was a line not to bounce all around but there was a line about metrics which almost got me fired on my current job because i quoted it um almost we, how close did you get jack um <laughs> let's put it this way i've been uninvited from quite a few meetings because i said this um the quote is, while most leaders think their companies are customer-centric, they tend to track company-centric metrics like revenue and profit rather than things customers actually care about. And I, I quoted that because we were working on strategic road mapping. And I made the remark that, you know, we're thinking about OPEX reduction and profitability where our customers really don't care. They want a delightful experience. And that, if we concentrate on that, it's through John K's obliquity, which I think you might have referenced that stuff comes organically as of Joshua is my customer. What can I, I need a forklift that doesn't leak. What can I give him that will truly delight him? That'll make him come back and the rest is built in. And that is something where, man, I wish they would just tattoo that on people's foreheads and MBA programs, right? Like it's, it's so, it's so elegant and yet people just miss it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very difficult, but you know, we do all witness what rushing feels like. You know, and it's um, not a great feeling. Um, and then, and then there's also the, the contrary, which is slowness. You know, I mean, the slowness mm -hmm. drives me nuts. You know, so especially in business. Um, but you know, it's it also took me that you know writing this book took about three and a half years. 
um, almost four years, right? So you could say, well, he's a slow writer. Um, and, and, you know, it's like, well, what, what are you, you know, ultimately trying to do? And then how do you find that kind of pace? I mean, there were periods of time where I didn't write anything for six months and, uh, and all that. I mean, I, I'm not, you know, uh, but to me, this is the kind of mantra. So I believe the mantras are something you try to use every day. Every day you try to live and breathe them. And um, if you're not thinking about them every day, then, then you know, you're probably not as close to becoming more agile. So I try to stop myself when I'm rushing, you know, on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Try to say, am I rushing right now? Or, you know, is this, am I, am I going at the right pace in terms of, you know, so it's, it's, you have to ask yourself those questions. This week, which mantras surfaced for you, Joshua? <laughs> well, definitely drive out fear, um, which is, of course, the famous words from uh, W. Edwards Deming. Right. So these mantras, by the way, I mean, they're not all just my, my own inventions. They're you know, be quick, but don't hurry is, is, is a John Woodenism. It was his mantra. You know, that was his primary mantra. He had other mantras as well, but that was the most important one. His own players would say, right, he'd say it many times a day. He would whistle, would blow his whistle and someone was rushing. Um, so that's that. But the drive out fear is a really important one. And um there's it's it's extremely challenging right so it's you know we we do some fixed we're doing some fixed bid projects right now mm. which we haven't done in a while and um they're they're wonderful in many regards because we can do all kinds of great things that we want to do we're not like asking people would you want to try continuous integration maybe perhaps try it give it a shot uh, tdd have a you know we can do all of our practices together and it's just amazing However, there's a lot of scope, there's a lot of work to get done, and there's there's a date. And so fear can enter the picture. You can start doing your Monte Carlo simulations and all, you know, all your calculations and still be like, well, I'm not sure we're going to make it. So, you know, navigating that is, you know, a challenge, you know, in terms of um, some people have no fear. They're just like, we're fine. Others are like, we think you're behind. So we are afraid, you know. And so how do you find the happy medium there? I don't have an easy answer for that. I, I think talking about it and um, airing your anxieties rather than just sweeping under the carpet is really important. Uh, and doing so in a way that doesn't offend people. So again, being graceful. Um, yeah, that's 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 what I'm struggling with and, and working on. I think there's a huge power in talking about them. Yes, just vocalize it, vocalize it, right? Yes. And, and what we know about our the way our brains work, where it's a different path through the brain when you read something, when you say something, and when you hear something. It's all three different unique paths through a brain. So that's why they say if you want to remember something, read it in a book, write it down, and say it out loud. But the power with vocalization and just saying it out loud, I am concerned with X. Even right. if nothing changes, you've spoken that out, and it has now been acknowledged. That's right. That's right. Uh, the the other one I'd say is the be readily resourceful, and that's another mantra in the book. Uh, be readily resourceful, um, and there's a uh, there's a particular story in the in the book called um, "Readily Resourceful in a Recession," and uh, it, it's it's actually about the 2008 recession, and you know. It looks as if the U.S. is entering the recession. We'll see, you know, what's going to happen in 2023. I'm not trying to scare anyone, you know, but there's talk of it. So it's the kind of thing where what the book is saying and what I've learned over the years is to not be afraid, but to be resourceful, to be readily resourceful. To be readily resourceful means you're, you're, it comes easily to you, right? That you're just resourceful in general. You're readily resourceful. Um, without pause. Readily means without pause. John Wooden wanted basketball players to not pause, to not hesitate, to be so good that they were just flowing. So if you can think of how high a bar that is for resourcefulness, to just be not hesitating as boom, I'm, I'm flowing into all these kinds of creative ideas, uh, given given a roadblock, given a bottleneck, given something hard in, in, the, in the environment, um, a very high bar to be readily resourceful. 
um, but something we can aspire to. So, you know, it, it just as as we inch closer to what could be a recession, I have to remind myself to be readily resourceful and uh, challenge myself to be that way and not be afraid. I think like any good mantra, it is an aspirational place to go. Yes. Right? It is a, a constant reminder to keep striving for that thing. And, yes. and most of them, you, you'll never get 100% there. That's right. No question about it. Absolutely. These are aspirational. Yeah. How many did we did we talk about? Three? I've lost track. Oh, we co- we, yeah, we covered a, two or three of them. And for, for those of you that are listening, um, watching uh, the, the references, please. I mean, the, you talked about tennis. You talk about Ticketmaster. The Ticketmaster one I thought was especially painful because I now decide if I want to go see certain things live by looking and going, oh, is this a live nation venue? Do I have to use t- Oh, no, not again. Uh, the Van Halen. Actually, M&M's. that was not Ticketmaster. <laughs> that was that was I, I won't I, I won't say who it was, but it was not Ticketmaster. So, fair enough, fair enough. Let's just say online ticketing for concert venues can be a little bit of a dicey uh, predicament. Uh, the Van Halen Eminem story. The the when you talked about you talked about one which we didn't touch on yet, Andy, which is start minimal and evolve. And you use the best example of this is the Picasso bull. And I know Peter Merrill uses this in the X scale course. I just came across a giant um, Twitter thread by Trung Fan, who's I'm pretty sure my brother from another mother. He is this insanely hyperactive lunatic who blogs, but he talked about that as well. The idea of getting rid of everything, but the essence, but what's important. That was super, super resonant to me. Yeah, that that start minimal and evolve is near, really near and dear to my heart, and I think it's it's the thing that I miss the most from most most people that come to the agile field and seem to learn a few things don't seem to have learned it, right? They're they're focusing on like sprints and team sizes and uh, maybe it's the scaled agile framework and and they're not actually thinking about starting minimal and evolving. Even if it's some giant government contract and you've got like all these different departments that have to work together, I'd still start minimal and evolve. I'd still build a walking skeleton, getting everybody to collaborate and build the darn thing and have some walking skeleton and then evolve it from there, add flesh to the bones over time. That's the way we do it. That's how we manage risks. Uh, it's just a lost art to some extent. And so mm-hmm. start start minimal and evolve Um you know, is is really gets into that. It's it's one of the only mantras in the book that you couldn't say, like, if you look at the definitions of Agile, you know, you might say, well, okay, how does this fit with that? Uh, quick, easy grace or quick, resourceful and adaptable. Um, I think it ultimately is about, you know, when you start minimal, you can produce something rather quickly and you can pivot easily. And, right. you know, you can basically adapt um, as you learn. So it, it really, all those words are there in start minimal and evolve quickness and adaptability and resourcefulness. Um, it's just, it's just something that creatively, um, is, is, is just incredibly important. I mean, I've even seen like, uh, you know, tennis instructors teaching a, a, a beginner how to hit a ball. You know, and they're not going to get into all the nuances of how your body is supposed to move, you know, the weight transfer, I mean, very nuanced things. They're not going to get into that. They just start with the basic stroke, you know, start minimal and mm-hmm. evolve. Um, and you, you can layer on from there the nuances. And I think this one, Joshua, is one of the more difficult ones because so I'm reading a lot. I've just picked up um, Brandy Olson's book on what is it, Realizing Flow. Um, we're going to have her on soon. She talks about... Um, as humans, we have that weird complexity bias where we have to solve for something or, or we have to solve for a complex problem. Our first instinct is to add something even more complex on top of it because that's usually quicker as opposed to taking the breath, boiling it down to its true root and then going from there. Like, you know, the Mark Twain quote, I wish I had more time to write a shorter letter. Right. God, man, he was he was something he was else. Um, he was. Uh, and, and even, you know, uh, Claude Shannon. The father of information theory, his famous lecture at Bell Labs, creative, uh, creative problem solving, where he said the first step is get rid of all the noise and get down to the essence, and that will help you find your problem. And I was reading that right after I read this, and I was like, oh, wow, these two things interact. It's the idea wow. of that kernel, right? Getting down to that kernel and then going from there. 
I'd love to read that. I've never heard of that before. So oh, I'll I'll pass it along. It's by Jimmy Sony. It's pretty it's pretty interesting, man. He was yeah. I actually turned it into a whole slide about Claude Shannon's cheat to problem solving, which funnily enough, if we're going to talk about references, there was just an interview with Elon Musk where he quotes him and doesn't realize he's quoting him where he says, when you have to solve an engineering problem, you got to get down, strip away the noise, strip away the excess, get down to the to the root of it. And then you have your problem. And I'm like, this guy's channeling Claude Shannon, and right? He doesn't even realize it. Yeah, I'll pass it along, Joshua. You'll oh, enjoy I love it. that. It was Thank a good you. read. Yeah, yeah right. that's awesome. We, we hit five, then the sixth one, be poised to adapt. Be poised to adapt, yes. And that one took a few turns, uh, you know, in terms of it, what it eventually came to be. Um, the term poised to adapt comes from the uh, resilience engineering community. Um, there are some really brilliant people in that field, um, and they're not as well known. I, I came to them through my studies about safety, um, and basically, uh, you know, they, they in, in their studies of safety in companies that are very, very safe, like they, they look at um, companies that are much more proactive in terms of safety, so companies that look at what's going right versus what's going wrong. Right. You might think, well, you know, companies that really focus on safety, they look, they solve every problem. They're every every you know problem that occurs. That's looking at what went wrong. But if you also study what's going right, you can start to see, well, we have resilience in this system, and here's how they dealt with it. Here's how we had a near miss, but here's how it was dealt with, because there were people in the system that could handle it. Um resilience engineering is a is a fantastic and interesting field. And so anyway, um, being poised to adapt puts it, it makes the bar even higher than just being adaptable. Um, so I'm hating to, to raise the bar, but the point they make is that to be poised means ready. It's, it's like readily resourceful when you're poised, you've done the work to be ready to handle changes that are coming. You don't know what they are, but you've done the work to be able to handle them. And it's a wonderful story that my friend Wyatt told me about this, uh, uh, the, the principal violist for an or orchestra, you know, and she was performing a solo and one of her strings broke. And she had to immediately within you know, a millisecond or so switch to a different string for that, for that solo. And she could do it because she was so practiced. So uh, such a master of her craft and her instrument that, that that was quite possible. So this this and NASA does this of course with like they'll they'll do all kinds of potential things that could go wrong. So on the Apollo 13 mission, they'd actually practiced essentially what would happen if the the astronauts had to go into the lunar uh, lander. They had actually practiced something like that. Uh, Hollywood makes it look like, you know, yeah, engineers on no the ground rushing and scrambling to fix the problem. But they'd actually, when you hear the story from the real astronauts, they had already, they'd already looked at a scenario similar to the one they actually had to experience. So they were poised to adapt. Right. And the, the, the lifeboat practice in it. Right, right. right. And to your point, Andy Clef, about just vocalizing, just vocalizing out of concerns, right? The fact that you've taken a second to think about, well, what happens if this happens? How would we react? It's the whole black swan from the scene to Leb. You've acknowledged it. You may have just spent a second or two thinking about it, but at least you've kind of thought about it. So it got your brain poked in that direction, regardless of solution or not. You've at least planted the seed that there is a pathway to talk about that. Exactly. And I, I'll even I'll even point it out that, that sometimes there are individuals that will trigger you. Um, that, that you know, just going into a meeting that this person has a reputation for saying very provocative things. And I believe that you can combine these mantras, right? So being poised to adapt and being balanced and graceful, you can go into it such a meeting going, eh, you know, I'm pretty sure they're going to say something provocative or something like that. I'm ready for it. I'm ready. I, I am poised to, poised to deal with it and I'm not going to get unbalanced going to you know let it happen and uh so i, I think it you know it, 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 these are things that apply to psychology and to human interactions as much as anything in, in business and how we deal with unexpected events i think they're applicable there too i want to switch gears um go back in time to 2017 and uh modern agile 
when we first chatted. How do those principles and values tie together with the mantras? Yeah, so, I mean, I, you know, modern Agile view is something that's still uh, very relevant in terms of what it's it's there to do. It, it's, it's trying to focus us away from all the frameworks and all of the kind of recipes and rituals and more towards what are we trying to achieve. So in general, in the product and services space, right, which is where most of us are, we're trying to make people awesome, right? And again, you know, if you've ever listened to anything about Modern Agile, Kathy Sierra is the inspiration for that. She was always very clearly saying, don't make a great camera, make great photographers. Yeah. Uh, don't, you know, don't focus on making a great product, focus on making great users, users that can do extraordinary things. Uh, so, you know, make people awesome is is that principle that that embodies what she was talking about. And, and I just extended it to not just users, but to the whole ecosystem. Mm. Um, and then make safety a prerequisite, you know, is very tied, closely tied to drive out fear. It's that Deming's principle of drive out fear, I felt goes a little further in terms of um, it's, uh, you know, you could say they're almost equivalent. I don't know. I, I, I just love them both, you know, and there's a story in the book called Make Safety a Prerequisite, and it's all about the Paul O'Neill story. Um, but drive out fear, I think, is the the ongoing task, right? Uh, Amy Edmondson's book on psychological safety is called The yeah. Fearless Organization. Right. Um, Linda Rising and, um, you know, and her co-author, you know, call it uh, fearless change. So this concept of driving at fear, uh, then there's a wonderful book from the 90s called Driving Fear Out of the Workplace. Um, all of them are really kind of focused on fear is kind of toxic to high productivity. So let's drive out fear. And, and safety is integral to that. So they're very, very closely related. I wanted to ask, so <clears throat> we've talked a lot about the mantras. We've talked modern agile. We've talked about all these things and how they all kind of relate to each other. If somebody's listening, someone just picked up the book, How? what are some of the things they should consider to get started? Uh, one of the quotes you had in there, which I, which I never thought of, but it really made me take a beat, was the idea of humans view change as loss. Mm. We experience change as a loss of something or a removal of something, when in reality, it's an addition. And for the people that are listening, where do they, where do they start? How could, you know, if you were walking into this, you know, a, a, an organization, what were some of the things that you'd be, well, I mean, I guess make it easier. What are some of the things you would consider to look for? when you're trying to figure out where to start? Okay, great idea. Yeah, great question. Um, well, I, I think, you know, ultimately, you, you know, you you have to look at the company's appetite for change and, and to see are they really, you know, interested in change or not. And, and as you said, most, most, most people associate change with loss. So they think, hey, something new is coming along. I'm going to lose what I was able to do before. Um, I'm going to lose control. I'm going to lose autonomy, you know, whatever. Um, you know, what, what we try to do is help people have more joy at work and less stress. So to me, those are good measures of success um, for at least what we're doing with people inside the organization. Of course, outside the organization, you're, you're trying to create, you know, customers that are just delighted and, and empowered by what you've given them. Um, so, you know, the I guess for me, uh, these days we're dealing, we used to deal just with waterfall thinking. Now we're dealing with not only waterfall thinking, but we're dealing with like legacy or outdated agile ideas. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's like a compounded problem. And we have to help people realize agile is not sprinting and doing stand-up meetings. Well, you have to, you need the third in the trifecta. You need a tool like Jira or Azure DevOps. Of course. <laughs> As I try to yes. swallow my own tongue. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what we, so there's that other, okay. So there's another, that other principle in modern algebra, which is experiment and learn rapidly. Right. And so we look for a culture of experimentation. Our even, even in a company that's very traditional, that's using older ideas, are they willing to experiment? Would they would they potentially try this with one team and see what happens? Um, 
So that ability to experiment is is critical to, to making change occur. You know, if that, that could be in any part of your life is, are you experimenting? Because if you're not, you're probably not learning, right? So um, there's there's that. Um, the, uh, the, the final thing, I mean, I look at is just, you know, the the hungriness to to get better because a lot, a lot of folks just don't have it they're like i'm just come to work yeah. and i'm happy and i'm not hungry to get better so there's it, it's a little more rare to find folks like that who are hungry to get better i think most of us are i think some of it gets it gets sort of like beaten out of us if you will um so you need like a ray of light to, to really see could it actually happen could we actually get better around here um but you know i'm not I don't I don't want to sound like you know all unicorns and stuff because I have seen organizations that made a huge transformation only to be acquired by a private equity firm and taken back to the Stone Age. Uh-huh. And mm-hmm. that was hard to swallow. Um, so you know, change can be fleeting, even improvements can be fleeting sometimes. Um it's 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 tricky the business we're in there's one other thing you know the willingness to experiment needs another piece and that is the slack time that you mentioned earlier that's and, right and so many places we walk into there's activity theater going on that's you right know, we're busy 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 100 utilization and and you you have a quote from i believe it's gene kim's phoenix project about uh, less important than doing the daily work is improving daily work. That's right. And, and it, but if you give no people, if you give no time for people to experiment because there's no slack, you just you're stuck. Yeah, on, you're on stuck. The, the hamster wheel of well, this is the only, the way we've done it. So yep. the, the things you've talked about, you know, a willingness to change the status quo, a willingness to resist going back down to the older ways of working it's hard very difficult um reading tom demarco's classic book slack which is a thin book and wouldn't take anyone more than an hour an hour and a half to read i mean it's highly 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 recommend for anyone interested in real change i quote that book in one of the stories and you Mm -hmm. know it's and it's closely related to be quick but don't hurry because he says that the companies that he admires the most are not they, they're invisibly not hurrying all the time. There's kind of a laid back, but, but kind of focused uh, feeling there. And so, you know, that goes back as well to something Steve Jobs once said to, uh, you know, Johnny, Sir Johnny Ive. You know, Sir Johnny Ive would, was uh, working with Steve and Steve would say to him, hey, what did you say no to lately? You know, and, and you know, John, Johnny I would say, you know, oh, he had a nice list because he knew John, he knew Steve was going to ask him. <laughs> he had a list of things that he said no to. But Steve was like, oh, no, 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 that's easy to say no to. What what did you really want to do that you said no to? Because you're already focused on something else. Right. And so that, you know, that limiting work in process, the, the getting to like deciding what not to do so you do less. That's something I try to do in my company more and more these days. People come with me, hey, let's do this project. It's like, oh, wait a minute. What do we have in flight already? Maybe we already have too much in flight. Maybe we need to double down on a couple of things and get rid of a few things and just do a few things really, really well rather than many things poorly and have that hurrying feeling all the time. So that mm-hmm. I'm still learning myself. I'm still a student of this, this these mantras, and that's one of them. Absolutely. We are all practicing. Joshua, we're coming up on the end of our time here. It's it's flown by, but I wanted to give you a chance to share out what you have coming up later this year. Book coming out in February. Are there pre-order links up now, right? Yes. You can go to joyofagility.com and learn more about the book and pre-order it from many different booksellers, including uh, international booksellers. Um, so it's completely, you know, something you can order now. I I, I did, um, I wrote this book to be able to be a- applicable to people in all kinds of industries. So this is very much, you know, even though people think of Agile as coming from the software industry, it, that's not true. Um, <laughs> there were people in, in like 
manu car manufacturing doing looking at uh, agility in the early 90s and very you know using the word agile and agility in the agility institute and lee iacocca was involved in this stuff. I mean, the concept of agility is ages old in fact some of, one of my favorite stories in the whole book is about the wright brothers yeah and how incredibly <laughs> yeah. agile they were in terms of their their ability to, to conquer a problem that had been around for hun you know, hundreds and hundreds of years um anyway it's meant for everyone. So if you're looking for a book that would really introduce people to agility, you know, uh, this is why I wrote the book. I'm hoping I'm hoping to help that maybe you can help me uh, bring the word agile back to the, uh, you know, joy that it it deserves and, and less of the commercial agile industrial complex problem. Oh, see, my dogs agree with that, right? <laughs> um, We're here, here. So what are the best ways for people to get in touch with you? We've got your website. Is that the preferred method or is it LinkedIn, Twitter? Yeah, yeah. People? The web, uh, industriallogic.com has a section for people and you can ping me there um, directly. Uh, I'm on Twitter and on LinkedIn is Joshua Karajewski. Um, and happy to um, answer questions. Um, Joy of Agility has an email list, so we're we're organizing some webinars in the future here. I'm doing a bunch of um, talks at, con at conferences and at some private companies. And um, yeah, I'm just thrilled that you both, uh, you know, read the book. I, I sent you some advanced copy and I, it's just wonderful that you were able to, you know, read it all. And thank you for that. Oh, it's our pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you again, Josh. And you, Jay. And also out to our listening audience. If you enjoyed this episode, the usual request, give us a review, a rating, leave some comments on whatever podcasting platform you use. If you want to just join the discussion, uh, meet us over at our Discord server on agileuprising.com. You'll find a link, and there you can share your stories about discovering the joy that's nested in agility. Finally, support from listeners just like you help us cover our hosting and podcast costs. See our show notes for details. Uh, you can become a patron. Until next time, this is the Agile Uprising Podcast, signing out. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.